1972 Miami Dolphins had started out 3-0, the last of the NFL Mohicans. Every other team had lost at least once already, but there was Don Shula's team of turquoise and orange looking down on the rest of the league. No one knew at the time exactly how high these guys would fly. All they knew was this was shaping up to be an autumn filled with really good times every Sunday. This is Josh Lewin, and the Good Time Gang rolled into Flushing, Queens, outside of New York City in week four of 1972. We'll chronicle what happened over these next 25 minutes or so. For Miami, this made three of the first four games on the road. Against three teams predicted to make the playoffs, no less. First, they had to play at the Chiefs with Len Dawson, Otis Taylor, and a brand new Arrowhead Stadium. Then at the Vikings with Fran Tarkenton and that purple people leader defense. Now it would be the Showtime New York Jets with Broadway Joe Namath, the quarterback, and high-quality talent all around him. The Jets these days playing at the home of baseball's New York Mets, Shea Stadium. And had the Mets made the playoffs this year, that would have posed a problem. This football game would have run into the National League Championship Series, scheduled for this very afternoon. A trip to New York meant a homecoming for a few of the Dolphins' players. Jim Kick was from Lincoln Park, New Jersey. Eddie Jenkins, a native New Yorker. Nick Bonacani from a nearby Massachusetts and would later settle on Long Island. Linebacker Doug Swift was from upstate near Syracuse. And let's face it, playing the Jets anywhere was nine miles of hard road in 1972. A lot of writers predicted they'd finish ahead of the Dolphins this year, even though Miami had been to the Super Bowl the season before. Veteran offensive lineman Doug Crusan said anytime you played the Jets, you knew you had to have things dialed in. Josh, uh, coming off of their year of the Super Bowl with Joe Namath, it was always a uh, thrill uh, to play against them and uh, Namath. Uh, you had to live with that entire, uh, uh, how should I say this, awesomeness that they presented coming in. Um, and, you know, if you play them in Shea Stadium, I mean, that is one friendly place to play football. Uh, and then the Colts, I think with the Colts memories of that, of course, are Coach Shula, him having left there and coming to Miami in 1970, uh, you always wanted to beat them because of him. It wasn't quite win one for the Gipper, but the unspoken understanding was Don Shula owed these New York Jets because of what had happened back in Super Bowl three in Miami. Coach Shula's son David made this road trip and was just 13 years old at the time. He was happy to recall some 50 years later what those games against the Jets meant every single time. Well, Joe Namath and the Jets were the reason that, you know, my dad ended up in Miami. Uh, you know, without, uh, I don't believe uh, that if the Colts had not lost to the Jets and the embarrassment that that caused uh, the Colts owner, Carol Ros Rosenblum, who made his, his fortune in the garment industry in New York City and lived in New York City uh, and had to go back there and deal with those fans and those people and you know, everybody on a daily basis, uh, that soured the relationship between he and my father. Uh, they, my dad stayed for the 69 season, but I think he could see the writing on the wall. And even though he had a very good team, the Colts that he'd left in 19... 70 to go down to Miami, they ended up winning the Super Bowl. You know, he still had a very good team, Johnny Nitus and Earl Morrill and uh, a lot of great players. Uh, but um, 
So uh, to, back to your point, you know, whenever we, we did play the Jets, uh, you know, I had those memories as a nine-year-old sitting in the Orange Bowl where the, uh, the Jets beat the Colts in that Super Bowl. Uh, I remember sitting and, uh, you know, the great disappointment and seeing how devastated my dad was and, um, and how it affected, uh, you know, his relationship and, and, and just the, the general good feeling that they had had all through the years building up to that and through the 68 season, uh, um, <clears throat> just got all washed away <clears throat> by that one defeat. So, you know, I always had, um, no, I wouldn't say resentment, but, uh, you know, took a, a lot of, uh, uh, joy in, in, uh, whenever the dolphins were able to, uh, beat Joe Namath and, and those jets. Cause you know, he had, uh, it put a tough one, a tough loss on my dad. Weeb Eubank still the coach now. And yeah, Joe Namath with his floppy dark hair and eggshell strength knees, still the quarterback. It was Namath with that blasted guarantee in Super Bowl three, who had led the upstart Jets past Coach Shula's heavily favored Baltimore Colts in, of all places, Miami. And we note that once Don Shula became coach of the Dolphins, Miami would win 42 of the first 48 games played under him at the Orange Bowl. You talk about exercising a demon. But Don's son David recalled it was always nice to play at home as opposed to on the road. Well, it was a huge home field advantage. Uh, you, you know, you had to climb it. Uh, and the Dolphins and my dad, you know, they did a great job of, of making sure that their guys were in shape and that they weren't uh, worn down so much that they couldn't handle it, you know, that they wore down during the season because they practiced too hard. And, you know, he used to uh, run, they, they had two a days during training camp and for, I think, six weeks or seven weeks training camp was back in those days. And they played six preseason games. Um, but he would limit his practice time to no more than an hour and 40 minutes. Uh, I think that was the afternoon practice or maybe the morning practice and then an hour and 30 minutes in the afternoon. Uh, there might be a walkthrough early in the morning or in the evening, you know, a couple times a week uh, in meetings. But, you know, he did not wear his guys out. So when other teams showed up to play in the Orange Bowl um, and had to deal with that heat and humidity and the sun intensity of the sun, you know, the dolphins were at an advantage. Uh, that was one. And then I had, you know, speaking earlier about, uh, you know, the crowd noise, uh, that was definitely a, a home field advantage. Uh, the dolphins took it, uh, were able to take advantage of in that, you know, the crowd affected the way the, uh, the other team's offense uh, was able to perform out there and execute and caused a lot of, uh, offside penalties and just confusion and, and people not on the same page because they couldn't hear each other. And um, that was a huge advantage for, for the Dolphins, uh, you know, all those years. Miami had to travel, though, for this one, taking the field in all-white uniforms while the Jets went with white pants and dark green jerseys. And right away, Joe Namath went to work, throwing underneath the Miami zone. A carefully measured 13-play drive culminated with a one-yard touchdown. Actually, a fumble recovered in the end zone by offensive lineman Randy Rasmussen. 7-0 New York before the Dolphins smartly and methodically got to work. Smart and methodical, two great words to sum up these 72 Dolphins. Here's Miami sports casting legend Tony Segreto. That team had so many great, not just characters, but really smart people who went on after their careers to be extremely successful. Extremely, I mean, I don't mean just successful. I mean, 
multi-million dollar successful. And I think that is testimony to the character that Don Shula brought on this club. You know, the, the, uh, when you talk to college football coaches today in 2022, as compared to talking to college football coaches in 1972, for example, there was no question they recruited the best athlete they can find. In 2022, college coaches, whether it's basketball, any sport, you name it, football, baseball, whatever it is, they're recruiting character as well as athlete. If there is a close call between an A-plus, can't-miss athlete and an A-minus, can't-miss athlete, but one with a better character and one you know you're not going to have any issues with and know who he's going to be, he or she's going to be a great teammate, that's the one the coach is going to go for in 2022. Or in 1972, there's no question who that coach would go for. Well, back in 72 and before that, when Shula got there, that entire offensive line was nothing but cast-offs, as I'm sure you've done your research, whether it was Little, Langer. Langer was a baseball player. You know, you, you had you know, uh, uh, Moore, Wayne Moore, who got, God rest his soul. You, you had Norm Evans, the minister. Uh, you know, Larry Little, Bob Kuchenberg, whose family was shooting him out of a cannon. They were a circus. They, played, they were in a circus. Uh, all these guys who were just different but smart and dedicated with an amazing work ethic. Uh, and then you, and then you put together this, this quarterback from Purdue who, you know, uh, loses the Heisman trophy to Spurrier yet comes into the pros and just lights out and, and manages this team better than anybody could not have been a better fit for Don Shola and what this team needed. And, uh, yeah, just remarkable. And then you bring in Zonk and Kick and Merck, and you've got yourself, and you and you have a Joe Thomas who's bringing in players like Paul Warfield in a major trade, finding Jake Scott in Canada, uh, you know, and getting Nick from from the Patriots. You you've got yourself a you know an amazing club that that proved that they they set a standard that has yet been uh, has not been matched. Let's go back to what Tony Segreto said there about the quarterback. Maybe the most cerebral Dolphins player of all was indeed the Purdue guy, Bob Greasy. Somewhat undersized for the NFL, his arm strength wasn't that of Billy Kilmer's or Roman Gabriel's, but everyone admitted if he wasn't as physically talented as those guys, he could still beat you with his brain almost every single time. And he certainly wasn't the Joe Namath kind of partier. Lots of 1970s quarterbacks were all about living it up every chance they had. Nick Bonacani said in an actual game, Greasy becomes like a, a real general in war. He doesn't talk to anybody on the sidelines. Nick used to say, I don't think anyone would dream of talking to Bob Greasy or patting him on the back or anything until the game is actually over. Greasy also had that hut hut hike trickery that Peyton Manning would make so popular nearly two generations later. Bob could draw a team off sides any time, it seemed, and he did so in this game three times. And as we mentioned, on the other sideline in this game was Broadway Joe Namath, bigger and stronger and flashier than Greasy for sure. As author Marshall John Fisher put it, Namath was the one in the white Gucci loafers and full-length mink coat and a blonde on each arm. Greasy was the one at home with his wife and kids. So, legend has it, before this Jets game, Greasy was flipping through the game program in the visitors' locker room at Shea. And this program contained an interview with Jets' third-year defensive back Steve Tannen. Now, Tannen 
was a Miami native, a standout at Southwest High. And in this interview, Tannen was asked who were the toughest receivers he had to cover ever. He named Otis Taylor, certainly no surprise. Taylor was an all-pro in Kansas City. But the second one he named was the Dolphins' little dog who acted like a big dog, the 5-foot-10-inch Howard Twilley. Eddie Jenkins recalled the hard-nosed Mr. Twilley like this. Hard-working, blue-collar, and and if you just watched him, you'd say, oh, please, that, you, that, he's so slow. He's so slow, he'd throw a head and leg fake out you and make you fall down, and he'd be going the opposite direction. <laughs> That's how good he was. I mean, he was... He, he, he threw everything into his move. I mean, you actually believe he was going that way. And, and then he would make a hard left or hard right and, and change his speed. And he, he, I seen him make people fall down, not only in practice, but in games. He, he was amazing in terms of showing that work ethic and how you can master certain moves, uh, even though you're slow. It's true. Twilly was always thought to be too small, too slow, too prone to injury. He always seemed to be on the brink of being traded or cut or benched. He had grown up in the Houston suburbs, never dreaming he'd make it to the NFL in the first place. Although at college at Tulsa, he had set the all-time NCAA record for pass receptions, was actually runner-up for the Heisman Trophy. But he hadn't played much in the NFL. He was a college graduate with honors in electrical engineering. So in 1970, Coach Shula had brought in his leading receiver from Baltimore, Willie Richardson, to Miami. But what do you know? Twilly beat him out. In 1971, Miami's number one pick, Otto Stowe, was supposed to take over that number two receiver position. But Howard Twilly hung on anyway. Even this year, with Marlon Briscoe brought in, Twilly found time to make his mark. Go back to training camp when Shula announced that Twilly's wife, Julie, had had a baby. And when a reporter asked what the name of the child was... Twilly said, well, we were going to name him Don, but that was before Coach Shula traded for Briscoe. <laughs> Here's Doug Cruzan. Twilly was a, uh, he came, you know, he was a, he was an original Dolphin. So he and Bob Greasy uh, knew each other well on the field as well as off the field. But Twilly was a, uh, I'll use the term scrappy receiver, hardcore guy. And I mean, I guess you look at us and there's Twilly on one side and Paul Warfield on the other. And oh, we got to watch Warfield. No, 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 no. You better watch that other guy. He's the one that's going to catch the bat. Twilly also had a memorable touchdown celebration. His was not a spike like some of the other Dolphins were starting to make popular. Instead, he was tossing the ball up in the air with two hands, like LeBron James throwing chalk into the air at the scorer's table 40 years later on the basketball court. And because Twilly was such a battler, battle mode even extended into the locker room sometimes. Not over anything serious, but things like who controlled the stereo system, the hi-fi. Twilly always wanted that country and western music. Howard Twilly wanted Conway Twitty. But Mercury Morris was a Power Jams 99 kind of guy. So who would win that battle? I asked Mercury that question. It wasn't a battle as much as it was... A determination. He was determined to listen to country western, and I was determined to listen to 99 jams. So it just went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until finally he saw that relentless is a word I often use. <laughs> and he just quit changing it, and then I changed it back. Did you guys fight over like the thermostat too? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> 
Morris versus Twilly. Choose your fighter. So, anyway, remember the defensive back for the Jets, Steve Tannen. It named not Paul Warfield as a Dolphins receiver he couldn't contain. He had indeed pointed to Howard Twilly, and Bob Greasy filed that nugget away and would use Tannen's words against him in this game. Early on, Greasy went for Twilly on third down, and Tannen actually made the play on this one. Swatted the ball away. Garrow Yepremian came on and missed a field goal, but Greasy was convinced he was onto something here with Twilly. Twilly was in Tannen's head. He could see it. And sure enough, later on, Twilly caught a slant for a touchdown. He would catch three more passes as the day unfolded from there. Might have had another touchdown, but Tannen interfered with him and was called forward at the three-yard line. Jim Kick took it home from there on that one. And Kick had gotten the start in front of his friends and family. Fellow New York, New Jersey type Eddie Jenkins was a big fan of number 21. Jim, hey man, first of all, Jim was a Jim was a pool player, man. You don't play, you don't mess with people like from Jersey City. I think he might be from Jersey City. Jim was a tough guy, just a tough guy. And, and in the game, and excuse me if, if I you're not politically correct or whatever, but uh, this was a game where where black runners were emerging, and and white runners were in a decline. And Jim was like, oh hell no. You know, Butch and Sundance is gonna make it. You know, and with uh, with quivering Merck coming behind him, so it was like this competition. But Jim was like, "I ain't giving up my spot," and uh, he was a hard inside the five runner man. I mean, tough as anybody in the league, and had great balance, great hands, and 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 you know, nice personality. You know, quiet, you know, gentle would talk to you. You know, uh, we because he was from Jersey, I was from New York, so he was like you know, almost a city boy man. Another city boy indeed got the start in his return to his home area. He scored twice this day. His best buddy Larry Zonka ran for 102 yards, including 124-yard burst. That would be the team's longest play from scrimmage all afternoon. We should mention this very weekend, Larry's new book comes out. LarryZonka.com is where you can find it. And you bet it has some anecdotes in there about what it was like to slug it out twice a year against the J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. In this game, Miami built a lead of 17-7, but then there was Namath throwing to Jerome Barkham 40 yards down to the 6-inch line. What happened? Goal line stand happened. Three tries, no inches gained, and a field goal would have to do for New York. Hat tip, as usual, to the so-called no-name defense. Tom Landry had coined that phrase, and I asked David Shula, son of the head coach, what was it about that no-name defense? Selfless. Um, team-oriented, um, smart in preparation, adjustments on the field, um, and and great competitors. Uh, love to play. Uh, great leadership from at all levels. You know, in, in the defensive line with Manny Fernandez and Dick Stanfell, and you know Nick Monacani as their middle linebacker and captain and in the secondary, you know, Dick Anderson and Jake Scott at the safeties and, you know, very talented, tough corners. And, um, uh, and Curtis, uh, I'm going to forget Curtis's last name, but uh, and Tim Foley on the other side, Curtis Johnson and Tim Foley, uh, you know, opportunistic, uh, had lots of takeaways and caused, you know, fumbles and turnovers and then got after the quarterback. And, and then, you know, on the, um, innovation side, you know, you had Bill Arnsbarger who basically created the, what's, you know, people know today as the three, four defense. Uh, that was, 
his creation and, and a guy named Bob Matheson, who was kind of a hybrid defensive end linebacker, could stand up and drop or stand up and rush the quarterback or get in a three-point stance and drop or rush the quarterback. And that uh, was revolutionary at the time and, and it was a, a great tactical advantage for the Dolphins. Nick Bonacani, the only Hall of Fame player as of now from that no-name defense, he had a last name that even his wife was known to occasionally misspell. And like so many Dolphins, he had been deemed too small for the National Football League. But he had worked seven seasons for the then-Boston Patriots in the AFL before being unloaded. The Dolphins were glad to have scooped him up in a trade. Here's his teammate and friend, Howard Kindig. Nick was an uh, extremely intelligent guy. Hell, he, you know, they had him down at 225. Hell, Nick never weighed 225 in his life. He was, but he was so quick and uh, so smart that he was one hell of a linebacker. And he kind of, he was kind of the heart of that whole defense. You know, he he was a defensive captain, and uh, I guess Gordon didn't call the quarterback the defense. He called the defensive and uh, kept everybody in line. This and another. But Nick was a, uh, a super guy. We always had a lot of fun together. And uh, matter of fact, he lived up in uh, in uh, Long Island, out on the tip in the, in the Hamptons out there. And my uh, my mother-in-law and father-in-law lived out there also. So, uh, but anyway, uh, it's a damn shame he had to go like he did. But uh, I you know, can't say anything that's not good about Nick. Complete respect in that locker room, no doubt about it. The son of two hardworking parents who ran a bakery in Springfield, Massachusetts, home of another sports hall of fame, that of the National Basketball Association. Nick had gone on to college at Notre Dame, the team's only All-American in 1961. He'd played pro football for an astonishing 15 years, eventually going to law school, becoming a sports agent for a stretch. Notable clients included baseball star Andre Dawson, and Yankees cult hero shortstop Bucky Dent. Bonacani also appeared in a memorable beer commercial. Do you know me is what he asked. That was popular in the late 70s and early 80s. In that commercial, he talked about the no-name defense, and the punchline was a variation on an old joke with Bonacanti remarking that everyone knows him now, whereupon a passerby remarks, hey, I know you, you're, uh, uh, and then trying to recall Bonacani's name, he was told it was Nick Bonacani, and the passerby says, no, no that, that's not it. Well, Bonacani would become well-known as a co-host of the HBO series Inside the NFL until 2001. It was that same year, 2001, when he finally got inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Here are some memories about Bonacani from his teammate and fellow Pro Bowler, Manny Fernandez. Yeah, well, Nick, you know, obviously very bright, uh, went on to a successful law career and then worked with the Miami Project to cure paralysis, uh, among other things. He was uh, a natural leader and he enjoyed being the leader. And he, I mean, just stayed on us throughout a game. Uh, most of the defenses were called in from the sideline, but he had the ability to uh, audible into other defenses, make changes, and he seemed to have not just a knack because it's beyond a knack. He knew the offenses we were playing well enough that he put us in the the primo positions to get the job done. So many key parts of that no-name defense also thought to have been too small. Just like Bonacani, you look at Tim Foley, 
Doug Swift was basically unnoticed coming out of tiny Amherst College, was cut by Montreal of the Canadian League before getting his shot in Miami. Cornerback Lloyd Mumford was drafted in the 16th round out of Texas Southern, and Mumford had a really strong game against the Jets this day. He would later say it was all because we kept moving around on Namath. We never tipped our hand, and Namath would always have to make his decision at the last second. Jake Scott would make things worse for Namath, continually tricking the quarterback. He had figured out that Namath had figured out that Scott tipped off certain coverages by his initial positioning and steps. So Scott counteracted that, started to alter everything, started one way, then going another. Broadway Joe got so frustrated, he started screaming obscenities across the line at Jake Scott. The guy with all that hair, furious with the guy that had basically none. And later in this game, we need to give a shout out to the goal line defense yet again. Plugging the line to stop three straight runs in a goal-to-go situation. An offsides penalty gave New York another shot, but Scott deflected a third down pass, and all the Jets would get on six tries from inside the five was a field goal. On the other side, it had been a 400-yard day for the Dolphin offense. Greasy throwing for 220 yards, the third best passing day in the league that weekend behind Norm Sneed and Roman Gabriel of the Giants and Rams, respectively. In the fourth quarter of this game, a fumbled punt by Charlie Lee would lead to a short touchdown run for the Jets, giving them some brief hope. But a 43-yard field goal by Garrow Yepremian eventually iced things. 27-17 would be the final. 4-0 and a two-game lead in the division already, with the baseball playoffs just getting started. Three of the four games so far on the road, but up next, a chance to come home and face the high-flying San Diego Chargers. At this point of the season, there were no Dolphins among the league leaders in any sexy category like passing yards, receptions, or rushing yards. The whole was very simply greater than the sum of the parts. And Don Shula's Dolphins were, as of October 8th of that year, on top of the football world. Mac Davis had the hot song on the radio that week with Baby Don't Get Hooked On Me. But the sports fans of Miami were finding it hard not to get a little tangled up in this turquoise fishing line. 4-0 with wins at Kansas City, at Minnesota, and at the Jets. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Next week, please join us and we'll tell you how they stayed there. Many thanks to all of our guests, and thanks to you for your interest in the perfect season of 1972. Again, the final from week four, your happy final, was indeed Miami 27 and the New York Jets 17.